series, um, which is culminated by saying God is still God. Regardless of what happens, he is still God. He is still on the throne. He is still the same person yesterday, today, and forever. That is the way that we want to start the year, which is a reminder that as things change and as political parties transition and presidents go out and presidents come in, what never changes and who can never be dethroned is God himself. Jesus Christ still reigns on the throne. And so what we've been doing is looking through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount And really working back through the things that he was saying, which was so foundational back then. But even what he was saying, he was reaching back from the the moral code of God, the Decalogue, the law, the Ten Commandments. And he was saying, you know, these things have not lost their value. They're not less relevant today. And he was reaching back to what was old to not say something new, but to give them the true revelation of God. And so what I've been doing, you know, a lot of times we want new things, especially new year, new revelation. But I thought the best thing we could do is reach back to what God has already said. I believe firmly that the Bible is complete, that the Bible is sufficient. Everything that is written is for our training, um, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So what we've been doing is reaching back and looking at what God has said. And one of the particular things that we notice um, as Jesus is teaching and preaching is he keeps reminding the people that the product of who they are, how it comes out in their life, has very little to do with what's actually happening externally, but what's going on internally, what the condition of the heart is, and what a lot of them were failing to do, which is the same thing we fail to do, which is to properly evaluate who we are, not solely based on the good deeds or good actions that we're able to perform, but to truly assess ourselves based on the heart that we have. And the only true way to assess the heart that you have is to look at what Scripture says. And then you look at what Scripture says, and then we judge our lives according to Scripture. Now, this is the reality. None of us, when we look at the Scriptures, when we look at Jesus Christ, feels like we're doing a great job. And we shouldn't. None of us should ever feel like, based on what Scripture says, based on God's standard of righteousness, that we are meeting that standard on our own. But what we should feel is that I am desperate to meet that standard, and the only way I can meet the standard of God is by accepting that Jesus Christ has given me his righteousness, because he lived a perfectly sinless and moral life that I could never live. And because of that, he has imputed to me his righteousness. Now, today we're going to look at, today first, anger, and then hopefully next week we'll get to lust. But we're looking at still God, but what God has to say about things like anger and lust and how those things are affecting us in our own lives. We all deal with it in in different ways. We all deal with anger in, in various ways. But I want to look at the standard that Jesus sets today and see how our lives are impacted by this, even when we don't think that they are. So go with me, if you will, as we talk about today what God views in terms of anger and how to reconcile that. Go with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. It reads, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the word. Lord, there are myriad issues that we all wrestle with in our lives. There are myriad things that we struggle with in our lives, God. And we cannot deal with those. We cannot be healed from those things, God, in our own strength. We desperately need the wisdom um, of Christ. We need the righteousness of Christ, God, for any hope and any attempt at any chance to get beyond the things that we struggle with, the hidden sins of our lives, God. So as we talk these next two weeks over today, anger and lust, God, please just open up our minds, open up our eyes, open up our hearts, God, and show us where we're making missteps, but also show us how that can be reconciled in our lives. This is what we ask. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Jesus begins this text stating quite emphatically that the understanding that the Jews and the rabbis had of the law was wrong. They had a wrong interpretation. They had a wrong understanding of the law. And they also misunderstood, we've talked about this, what God required according to that law. And so this goes back even to our sermon from last week for those who struggled with the, not the act itself, but there was a root. There was something deeply rooted that preceded the action itself. And that that was the thing that causes one to violate God's commandments. In other words, they were trying to control their actions as a means to be obedient to the law of God. They thought that everything that they were trying to do, right or wrong, happened and ended and completed with their external behavior. And what we realize is that one of the easiest things for us to do is to correct external behavior without an internal change actually happening. Most of us within our own strength can make that happen. You don't need to be a Christian to stop cursing. You don't need to be a Christian to stop smoking cigarettes. But what you do need is to be a Christian to have the heart change to change why you desire that in the first place. What was driving that motivation in the first place? And that's one of the things that happens a lot of times is that people think because they can cut off their desire right before the act is committed, they're good. But what Jesus is showing us constantly was that that is the full completion of your sin. But the root, the beginning, the cause of your sin is what is erupting in our hearts already. And so what we have to wrestle with today and next week and continue to come to terms with is that there are probably crevices and creaks and nooks and crannies in our heart that we are not allowing God to infiltrate and clean us up. And while we may think we're clean, oftentimes the condition of our heart comes out in the most, I guess, desperate ways. It comes out in the most crucial ways. And so what we're going to do is continue to look, at back, look back at what the standard of righteousness was according to Jesus and see what he means. 
You remember last week, he concluded by saying that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the rabbis and the scribes, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, what was the level of their righteousness? Well, we don't do any of the things that the law says that we shouldn't do. And we do all the things that the law says that we should do. But what they failed to realize is that there was this perversion and wickedness and sinfulness that was going on in their heart. And they were not dealing with it. They had only a righteousness that was found in their external responses and reflexes, which is why Jesus said that these people honor me with their lips. They say the right things. They even do the right things, but their hearts are far from me. So today, as we address anger and lust next week, we have to see how anger brews in our hearts and why Jesus is emphatic about anger and how we can overcome it. You'll notice in verse 21, Jesus says, you have heard to those of old. You have heard those of old. It's a very interesting terminology. You have heard that the people of old have said this. And basically what he's communicating is that you have been told this is not what the law actually meant. You have been told by the rabbis, by the scribes of old, do not murder. But I'm telling you that that was a misinterpretation of the spirit of the law. But that's what you heard because that was what you were told. But that is not what it meant. He says that is not the sum total of everything God is saying regarding the law. But this, contrary to what they said, this is what God meant and what he intended when it was written. And it begins here, not with the completion of the act of murder, but Jesus goes all the way back to the root of that thing and says, but it's anger. It is unbridled, uninhibited, unprayed for, unsanctified anger that, li that lives in the heart that resides deeply in all of us. He says, so when you read the law, you saw do not murder. But what God said is do not allow sin to reside in your heart so long that you are driven to murder. Jesus is serious about the weight of a right understanding of God's word. For Jesus, there is no kind of missing the mark. It's either you get it right or you get it wrong. There is no wiggle room here. And we see because of their wrong, their misinterpretation of what God actually meant in his word, they had built a whole theology on something that wasn't true, which is feel the desire, don't do the act, and you'll be good. You won't be held accountable for anything that you felt in your heart, anything you desire. You'll only be accountable for the things you actually do. So as long as you don't do it, you're fine. That was the whole basis of what they believed to be true about God. But not only that, they believed that that obedience was enough to get them into heaven. So everything they believed based on that one misinterpretation, which seemed so small, was condemning them every day of their lives. Many people, they think that you can be slightly off when it comes to the word, but there is no wiggle room here. There is no in-between. Five times in our text, Jesus says, this is what you have heard, 
but this is what I say. Now, he is not saying anything new. He is only correcting their misinterpretation, but he also speaks with the authority of being God in the flesh to say, I know what the law meant when it was written because I'm the one who wrote it. I was there in the beginning. I was there before Abraham was righteous. He says, before Abraham, I am. Why does he say that? Because he's saying, I am the fullness of who God is. That's what Colossians tells us. In him dwells the full body, the full deity of who God is. So when he's sharing what the law is, he's saying this is what it meant when it was written. So he is not changing the law. He is fixing where they have erred in their understanding of God. So he begins, this is what you have heard. You have heard it said, do not murder. That is what you've heard. That is what you've been told. And so there were people walking around who, because they weren't murdering, thought that they were not guilty. So you have been you have heard you have been told and understood the interpretation of the law, which is to say this. You should not commit murder, but you realize what Jesus says. Jesus even goes further in their interpretation. He says, you have heard of old, do not commit murder for those who commit murder will be liable for judgment. So this was the, the big misinterpretation. You have been warned not to commit murder, but the only reason you're not committing murder is that you don't want to have to pay the penalty for having murdered somebody. Is that the kind of obedience that God is looking for in our lives? Well, God, I don't want the punishment of disobedience. Therefore, by default, I obey. No. God wants an obedience that has transcended our hearts so that because we love him and do not want to disregard his moral law, we obey. But Jesus says, but this is what you've done. You did not want the consequence of disobedience. So what you did is obeyed by default. And he's like, I know you have been told this for hundreds of years and I hate to break this news to you, but that's not good enough. It's not good enough. And so if you remember, he says, and he's quoting right from the Ten Commandments. He says that it literally says, do not murder. No qualification. It does not say do not murder except in these conditions. It does not say do not murder except when is this, when is that, when is this. The moral standard of God is Black and white, do not do it. Now, the only reason we make exceptions for committing murder is to let ourselves off the hook for that latter portion, which is I don't want to be liable for judgment. So we change the standard of God so that we can let ourselves off of the hook. If you remember, Jesus asked the man who comes to him, the rich man that comes to him and says, what can I do to get eternal life? And he asks him this question. It's beautiful. He says, what does the law say and how do you read it? Why is he asking him, how does he read the law? Because our understanding of God's moral code, the way we read it, affects how we respond to it. It affects how we behave in regards to God's law. 
If God is just telling me, do not murder, then guess what? I'm innocent. Because I've never actually physically killed anybody with my hands. But most of us are guilty of murder in this sense. That I would rather live my life angrily as someone who has offended me, who has committed some kind of injustice against me. I would rather live my life as if that person doesn't exist. And while you have not killed them physically, you have emotionally forsaken that person's existence. And what Jesus says is that if you think that you are off the hook, you are not. You are just as liable as the person who has actually killed somebody. Think about it like this. I just said that the way we read the law affects how we respond to it. I want you to think about this. We have read in our own legal system, one of the laws that I struggle with the most, probably the only one I really struggle with, do not speed. Right. That is what the law says. But I think we all are probably smart enough to know that the do not speed rule, the speed limit is really consolidating this big, massive point as simply as it can, which is don't drive recklessly. That's why we're told not to speed so that we do not drive recklessly. That is what the spirit of the law is. So you can't just drive all over the road. You can't swerve. You can't stop. You can't do all this stuff and say, well, I'm not speeding. Because you know that the interpretation of that law is do not drive in a way that is dangerous to yourself or others. And if you tell an officer, well, officer, listen, I wasn't speeding. He said, but that is not the end all be all of that law. That is the most consolidated way we could say, don't do all of these other things. That's why the law is actually given. It is summed up, though, in those terms, do not speed. So to say do not murder, it is not just the full interpretation there. So what is the spirit of the law that says do not murder? This is the meaning. This is the meaning. Don't let sin, don't let anger, don't let discontentment fester in your heart. Don't be the man or the woman who ignores their spiritual condition. Look at what 1 John 3.15 says. Everyone who hates his brother is what? A murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So what does Jesus and the law mean? Look at James 1.15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The connection here and then eventually to lust and even divorce, which you're going to see the week after that, is that for the sin of anger, murder is the fully grown effect of anger. He says that it is conceived, but when it is fully grown, it brings about death. 
So what we're going to see, because we've always separated when Jesus talks about the sin of anger, lust and divorce. He's not separating those. He says those things, the sin of anger, the sin of lust, when it is fully grown in terms of marriage, will bring the death of that marriage. That is the full picture that Jesus is painting for us. But he's also painting for us. That we all in some kind of way are allowing the conception of sin every single day in our lives. And think that because we haven't seen the full effect of the result of it, that we're okay. Anger is the root of all sorts of atrocious sins. And when it boils over, it's murder. Now again... It is either the emotional forsaking of someone to live as if they don't live or it is to be so angry at somebody that you will do whatever you can to cease their existence. So what are the implications? What are the implications of unconfessed anger and hate towards someone? It's this, and I please get this. You cannot reasonably, you cannot reasonably expect to be reconciled with God if you are not reconciled with the people that you know. That is why the Bible says anybody who claims to love God whom they've never seen, and you hate the brother you see every day, you are a liar. Because how can you expect to ever be at peace with God, to ever be reconciled with God, and there are people who you need to be at peace with and reconciled with, but because of your anger, you won't allow it to happen. But we'll have the nerve, and this is what Jesus means, to come to a church and say, you deserve it. No, God doesn't deserve this trash. And that's what Jesus actually says. Don't think that is me. This is what Jesus means. He says, if you come to offer up your offerings and your sacrifices and you have a brother who you know has an issue with you, don't even think that that will be accepted. You leave and you go be reconciled with them because the whole reason you are offering the sacrifice is to be reconciled with God. That's what Jesus is saying. Why? Why is he making his point? Because the irony here is that it is with the same heart that you remain unreconciled with your brother that you seek reconciliation from God. It's with the same lips that you curse and insult and mock that person that you're angry with that you say, I love the Lord. Now, we emphasize if you have something against your brother. But I like what Jesus does. He says, but even if your brother has something against you, you should not be at peace with the fact that they are not at peace with you. Now, you may see this and think, well, I thought we were talking about anger. Now you're talking about reconciliation and people um, being friends. 
Well, I want to go back to what Jesus says when he comments that anyone who is angry at a brother or even insults them, even insults them, then you are liable for judgment. Now, why is he talking this way? Because in their system, in their legal system, the punishment for murder was judgment. And clearly, very often, the punishment for that judgment would be death. And so they were all thinking, well, it's only if I commit the act of murder that I will be subject to earthly judgment. But Jesus is saying, you don't even have to commit the act. If you felt what leads to murder in your heart, you will still be guilty of judgment. You may escape, escape this world's judgment, but you will still be found guilty in the eyes of God. And honestly, he's the only one who could actually render a true judgment on any of us. And for them, that was the standard of the law. Just don't do it. But Jesus says that for him and God, that it is those who commit murder who will, is not just those who commit murder who will be judged, but it is those who have felt it through anger in their hearts who will be judged. He goes so far even to say that anyone who says you fool, which just meant empty-headed or raka which is a term we don't know, but I assume it's something like I say quite often, you idiot or stupid or something like that, just a general insult. Anybody who feels anger enough to refer to somebody that way, you are guilty, is what he's saying. Now the question is, is Jesus going too far? Like we have this general idea that Jesus, oh, you know, Jesus came to give us grace and Jesus came to just kind of let us do whatever we want to do. But it's actually Jesus here who is speaking and saying, yeah, you have a standard of the law that I say doesn't meet God's standard. Obviously not. Obviously, he's not going too far here. But let's explain why. As Jesus is describing someone who commits murder, they do it because they are angry enough but he is also describing someone who has felt and even done all the things toward someone. This was someone who felt that they were wronged, who was driven to insults and even slander about another person's character. He is describing someone whose heart is not only unhinged, but he is also describing someone who bypasses and overlooks the evidence of who they really are. So what is the evidence and how can you see it in your own life? This is a real question. What is the evidence of a heart unhinged and how do I know that that's going on in my life? Let me ask you this question and I want you to think about this as personally as possible because I had to think about it when I'm doing this sermon. How do you respond when you're angry? How do you respond when you're angry? Think about this. Why do the things that make you angry make you angry? Because if you're like me, I get angry because I have all these lofty expectations of myself. And naturally, I have all these lofty expectations of people around me. And what happens more often than not is I'm pretty calm and collected until I had an expectation of someone and they didn't meet it. And I get angry about it. 
Because they failed to meet the standard that I set. But the hypocrisy is, I am willing to pour my wrath out on somebody because they didn't meet the standard that I set because I'm angry about it. But then it forces me to think, not one time in my life have I ever met the standard of God. Yet the wrath that he should be pouring out on me right now, he already poured it out on Jesus. I know when I say it like that, it makes you think, dang, I can't be mad about nothing. That's right. There are really only two occasions that anger is permitted. It is when it comes from God, when it's God's wrath, and when we are angry with righteous indignation about the things that offend God. So when I put it like that, it makes you think that most of the stuff that we get angry about are not even legitimate. Because most of the stuff that we get angry about is not about what people do to offend God. It's about what people do to offend us. And how dare we be more angry and, and indignant about how somebody would offend us and not how somebody would offend God. Jesus says that whether you are angry or have angered someone else and you go offer sacrifices, then you are living as if everything is okay. And he says that anyone who does this is guilty enough our translation says hell, but the word that he uses is, is actually Gehenna. And, the way, and he gets that word from the Old Testament, which is um, in Gehenna, when the, these people committed sins against God, they basically took that, that city and made it a landfill where they burned their trash. And so in Rome, Gehenna was a large pit with just fire. And you would take stuff and you would burn it. And so he's saying that any of us who disregards God, God's moral law is guilty enough for hell. That is what he's saying. Even in the way that we think would be the smallest way. But what did Jesus say last week? Not one iota, not one dot will pass until all of the law is fulfilled. We do not have space to think that we can get away with even an ember of sin in our lives. Because if you know anything about an ember, it will become a flame very quickly. But Jesus here isn't just giving us the information, but he's also warning us. Why is anger so dangerous? For the reason I just mentioned. Anger is only appropriate in those two ways. And because it's only appropriate in those two ways that I mentioned, then we don't even understand the depth of our anger most of the time. And I think Jesus is even more emphatic about this because he witnessed the very first act of anger in the Garden of Eden or outside the garden with Cain and Abel. He saw it. He was a witness to it. When Cain got angry, he got angry because his sacrifice was not accepted and God was treating his brother Abel in a way that he felt he deserved to be treated. 
And so the word that is used for his anger in the Old Testament is anger that burns, anger that is kindled and that grows hotter and hotter and worse and worse. And God tells him that when he sees his anger, he will not accept his sacrifice. God even asks him, knowing the condition of his heart, why are you angry? God knew why he was angry, but I think the real question is, is your anger legitimate? Do you actually have a reason to be angry here? Your spirit has fallen, Cain. That's what he said. And he asked him why. And it was anger. Anger led to the very spirit of Cain to be vexed. And because of this, God would not accept the sacrifice that he made. So what is the source of any anger? For Cain, it was simple. And this is probably where we have dealt with anger the most in our lives and have probably let it go unnoticed. When God did not accept his sacrifice, he felt, God, I've worked. I've done what you've required of me. I gave my offering. I tilled the ground. But you're telling me that my hard work isn't enough. Yet Abel's work was. He thought that his work was underappreciated. He thought that the good that he was doing was going unnoticed. He thought that God had no appreciation for what he was doing right. But he was blind to the fact that it was his own heart that prevented it. Now, I want us to think very intentionally, even about that. How many times have we gotten angry because we felt like our work wasn't appreciated? Husbands and wives. I know we've all probably felt like the other one didn't notice or appreciate what I did. Other people here in just relationships with people or who have bosses. How often have you been mad because you felt like somebody did not acknowledge the hard work that you were doing? Therefore, for Cain, because he felt like he was underappreciated and undervalued, the anger that he felt towards God, he took out on Abel. And he killed him. He was so angry that he killed his own brother. And Jesus wants us to know quite explicitly that this is what happens when we allow anger to fester and burn in our hearts. This is the pattern, just in case you don't understand. Anger becomes resentment. So it goes from I'm angry over this particular thing to Every time that person coughs, I get upset. So it goes from anger to resentment, and then it goes to downright bitterness. That if somebody even brings up that person's name, it evokes all the feelings that you feel about them. Now, that has nothing to do with that person. Because it does beg to reason, the only way that this issue that you have with this person would have been resolved would be that you did what Jesus said do. What did Jesus say do? 
Jesus says, come to terms quickly. Why does he say that? Because most of us won't come to terms quickly. Most of us, when we're angry, we do not go to the people that we're angry with. We go to all the people that know the person we're angry with. And we tell all those people about all the things that we have against that person. In my role at at our school now, a lot of times, because I'm seen as like the spiritual, I guess, oversight of the school, a lot of times I'm in the middle of people who have all these overlying issues and underlying issues. And my same question is, did you talk to them? Well, no, I'm talking to you. I'm not them. I ain't the person that got the problem. You are. They don't even have a problem. You need to go reconcile because what's happening is every day you don't go to that person. You are forming this perception of them that is all based on your anger and you haven't even communicated that they offended you. And now you resent them. And now you're bitter towards them. Now, the reason I think Jesus is lumping Anger, lust, and marriage all again, and divorce all together is because I do think it has a particular effect even on marriages, and I think that it has um, importance for those of us who are married. But it's even to those of us who have any relationships. If we allow the flame of anger to burn, it will grow. It will grow. And it will absolutely destroy everything in the path of our lives. So it isn't necessarily, as we think, the magnitude of the thing we're angry about. It's not just that, oh, it was this little offense. For Jesus Christ, it's what a little offense will grow into. A little flame, a little spark can burn an entire house down. I want you to listen to this C.S. Lewis quote, and it's about anger, but it's specifically about what we think is the big result of it and what we think is, you know, just a little small offense that nobody really needs to know about. He says this, one may be so placed that his anger sheds the blood of thousands. And then another person, may be so placed that however angry he gets, he will only be laughed at. But the little mark on the soul may be much the same in both. Each has done something to himself that, unless he repents, will make it harder for him to keep out of the rage next time when he is tempted and will make the rage worse when he does fall into it. Each of them, however, if he seriously turns to God, can have that twist in the central man strain out. Each is, in the long run, doomed if he will not. The bigness or smallness of the thing 
seen from the outside is not what really matters. In the parable of the prodigal son, many times we focus on the ungratefulness of the younger one. But what about the ungratefulness of the older son? When his brother comes back, his father runs out, clothes him, puts his jewelry back on him. They take a fatted calf and they celebrate. And instead of going out there with them, the older son says, you never took out a fatted calf for me. You never did any of this for me. This, this man left. I stayed. He thought his work was underappreciated. He thought his life was undervalued. Even though he remained there, the only reason he remained was the same reason the other brother left. The other brother left so he'd get his inheritance. The older brother stayed so he'd get his inheritance. It was the same thing. And when his brother comes back, his dad says, your brother was counted to me as dead. And you know what he was probably thinking? Yeah, to me too. See, he had never even vocalized or voiced what he felt about his brother. But when his brother came back, all the anger, resentment, and bitterness that he felt came out in that moment because when he thought his brother was dead, he was at peace. It was like he had killed him himself. Jesus says here and in Matthew 18 that, that you reconcile. This is what I want you to take. Please listen to me. That you reconcile and you make peace quickly. And a lot of people say, because well, you don't know if you're going to live, you don't know this person going to live. That's not even enough. Because if I don't reconcile or make peace with them quickly, that means I don't care if they live. If you have something against somebody or you know somebody has something against you, you go right to that brother or that sister. You do not give place for Satan to grow that anger. You address it. And you admit in your heart who you really are and what you actually feel. You extinguish the flame of anger and wrath and rage out before it can ever burn. That is what we've been called to do. That is what we've been called to do. And if we are not constantly taking personal inventory, of our lives and really thinking in our lives about places that we are allowing anger and lust and, 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 and deceit and any other kind of sin to hide in our hearts because it's not coming out. Well, C.S. Lewis said it's true. Each of us, if we repent, can have the crooked places in our lives perfectly straightened out by Jesus. But each of us, if we don't, are doomed. 
Because for the Christian, the life is repentance. And for the non-believer, the life is living as if everything is okay. So if we are all saying that we are Christians in this room, that means that the lives that we live should be constantly scrutinized by the word of God. And so when you think, why do I get angry? Is it because I have people who are not meeting expectations that I've set? I want you to think about this. Have you even communicated to the people you're mad about about the expectations that you set for them? Do, does the person even know that this is what you expected of them? Or when they don't meet the expectation, do you tell them, hey, you know, this is what I was hoping you would do, and it didn't happen. Like, can we talk about it? When a person offends you or does an injustice or commits an injustice against you, do you let that person know what you feel? Am I upset and resentful or am I vengeful and am I seeking to get other people on my bandwagon? When I'm upset with somebody, I'm going and telling other people so they can be mad too. So the key to us living more and peaceful, God-honoring lives will be this, that we consistently go back to the teachings of Jesus And we sweep out our lives. We bear who we are before him. We confess our sins to him. And as the Bible says, he is just and he is faithful to forgive us of our sins. But we must confess them. So my prayer for you today is that this will not only be the reminder that I have hidden sin in my life, I do, but that Jesus can clean up all the filthiness in my life. He can straighten out all the paths. And even if people don't know that I'm struggling with this, Jesus does know. And if I'm a Christian, I don't have to struggle with it like this. I have the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the standard that he met and forgiveness through him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the word of God today. God, we thank you how you have given us a standard of righteousness. You have given us uh, an absolute truth in regards to things like anger, in regards to things like lust, in regards to myriad the myriad sins that we can face, God, and how those things, when we don't address them, will disproportionately affect and even ruin our lives. So, God, as we pray today, Lord, let us think honestly and sincerely about the areas of our lives that maybe people don't know about, maybe that are not even coming out, but that we know, God, 
God, help us think about the ways that we have kept anger and resentment and lust and we have allowed the flames to build up in our lives, God. Lord, and let us know that anything that we feel and we wrestle with and we struggle with and we deal with, God, you can heal us. You can free us. That is the weight of what is said to us in Isaiah, that it's your stripes that heal us from the condition that has most affected us and is our sin. So, God, if there is any hidden anger, any resentment, any bitterness, God, please reveal it to us. God, give us the strength to go to the people that we have issues with and be honest and sincere about it. And, God, even... Let us have an open heart, knowing when people have issues against us, to be sincere enough to go to them and reconcile with them. God, we pray that you allow the word to have its full effect in our lives. And that that this method, that when we obey the Bible, we will see the peace that you provide. Now and forever, God, we thank you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.